Section 8 of Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of St. Mark by J. C. Ryle. Chapter 2, verses 23 to 28. The Right View of the Sabbath Day Expounded. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Mark, chapter 2, verses 23 to 28. And it came to pass that he went through the cornfields on the Sabbath day, and his disciples began, as they went, to pluck the ears of corn. And when the Pharisees said unto him, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath day that which is not lawful? And he said unto them, Have ye never read what David did, when he had need, and was anungered, he and they that were with him? How he went into the house of God in the days of Abathar the high priest, and did eat the showbread, which is not lawful to eat but for the priests, and gave also to them which were with him? And he said unto them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. These verses set before us a remarkable scene in our Lord Jesus Christ's earthly ministry. We see our blessed Master and his disciples going through the cornfields on the Sabbath day. We are told that his disciples, as they went, began to pluck the ears of corn. At once we hear the Pharisees accusing them to our Lord, as if they had committed some great moral offense. Why do they on the Sabbath day that which is not lawful? They received an answer full of deep wisdom, which all should study well, who desire to understand the subject of Sabbath observance. We see from these verses what extravagant importance is attached to trifles by those who are mere formalists in religion. The Pharisees were mere formalists, if there ever were any in the world. They seem to have thought exclusively of the outward part, the husk, the shell, and the ceremonial of religion. They even added to these externals by traditions of their own. Their godliness was made up of washings, and fastings, and peculiarities in dress, and will-worship, while repentance, and faith, and holiness were comparatively overlooked. The Pharisees would probably have found no fault if the disciples had been guilty of some offense against the moral law. They would have winked at covetousness, or perjury, or extortions, or excess, because they were sins to which they themselves were inclined. But no sooner did they see an infringement on their man-made traditions about the right way of keeping the Sabbath than they raised an outcry and found fault. Let us watch and pray, lest we fall into the error of the Pharisees. There are never wanting Christians who walk in their steps. There are thousands at the present day who plainly think more of the mere outward ceremonial of religion than of its doctrines. They make more ado about keeping saints' days, and turning to the east in the creed, and bowing at the name of Jesus, than about repentance, or faith, or separation from the world. Against this spirit let us ever be on our guard. It can neither comfort, satisfy, nor save. It ought to be a settled principle in our minds that a man's soul is in a bad state when he begins to regard man-made rites and ceremonies as things of superior importance, and exalts them above the preaching of the gospel. It is a symptom of spiritual disease. There is mischief within. It is too often the resource of an uneasy conscience. The first steps of an apostasy from Protestantism to Romanism 
have often been in this direction. No wonder that St. Paul said to the Galatians, Ye observe days, and months, and times, and years. I am afraid of you, lest I have bestowed on you labor in vain. Galatians chapter 4 verses 10 and 11 We see in the second place, from these verses, the value of a knowledge of Holy Scripture. Our Lord replies to this accusation of the Pharisees by a reference to Holy Scripture. He reminds his enemies of the conduct of David when he had need and was a hungered. Have ye never read what David did? They could not deny that the writer of the book of Psalms, and the man after God's own heart, was not likely to set a bad example. They knew, in fact, that he had not turned aside from God's commandment all the days of his life, save only in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 5. Yet what had David done? He had gone into the house of God when pressed by hunger, and eaten the showbread, which is not lawful to eat but for the priests. Footnote. There is some difficulty in this passage in the mention of Abiathar as the high priest. In the book of Samuel it appears that Abimelech was the high priest when the circumstances here referred to took place. 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 6. The explanations of this difficulty are various. They are as follows. 1. Beza says that both Abiathar and Abimelech each had two names, and that Abiathar was frequently called Abimelech, and Abimelech Abiathar. See in proof of this Second Samuel chapter eight verse seventeen, First Chronicles chapter eight verse sixteen, and chapter twenty four verse three. Two, Lightfoot would translate the words, "In the day of Abiathar, the son of the high priest," and says he is named rather than his father because he brought the ephod to David, and by him inquiry was made by Urim and Thummim. He also says that the Jews by Abiathar understood the Urim and Thummim, and to say that the thing was done under Abiathar would show that it was done by divine direction. 3. Whitby thinks that by the high priest here we are not to understand him who was strictly so called, but only one who was an eminent man of the order. He quotes as examples Matthew chapter 2 verse 4, chapter 26 verse 3, chapter 27 verse 62. John chapter 11 verse 47, Mark chapter 14 verses 10 and 43. 4. Some think that both Abimelech and Abiathar officiated as high priests at the same time. That there was nothing altogether unusual in there being two chief priests at once is shown by 1 Samuel chapter 8 verse 17, where two names are given as the priests. 5. Some think that there has been a mistake made in transcribing the original words of St. Mark in this place, and some words have been inserted or wrongly written. Beza's manuscript omits the words translated, in the time of Abiathar the high priest, altogether. The St. Gall manuscript and the Gothic version have the word priest simply and not high priest. The Persian version has Abimelech instead of Abiathar. However, it is only fair to say that the evidence of the great majority of manuscripts and versions is in favor of the text as it stands. Some of these solutions of the difficulty are evidently more probable than others, but any one of them is far more reasonable and deserving of belief than to suppose, as some have asserted, that St. Mark made a blunder. 
such a theory destroys the whole principle of the inspiration of scripture transcribers of the bible have possibly made occasional mistakes the original writers were inspired in the writing of every word and therefore could not err End of footnote. he had thus shown that some requirements of god's laws might be relaxed in case of necessity to this scripture example our lord refers his adversaries they found nothing to reply to it the sword of the spirit was a weapon which they could not resist they were silenced and put to shame now the conduct of our lord on this occasion ought to be a pattern to all his people our grand reason for faith and practice should always be thus it is written in the bible what saith the scripture we should endeavor to have the word of god on our side in all debatable questions we should seek to be able to give a scriptural answer for our behavior in all matters of dispute. We should refer our enemies to the Bible as our rule of conduct. We shall always find a plain text the most powerful argument we can use. In a world like this we must expect our opinions to be attacked, if we serve Christ, and we may be sure that nothing silences adversaries so soon as a quotation from Scripture. Let us, however, remember that if we are to use the bible as our lord did we must know it well and be acquainted with its contents we must read it diligently humbly perseveringly prayerfully or we shall never find its texts coming to our aid in the time of need to use the sword of the spirit effectually we must be familiar with it and have it often in our hands there is no royal road to the knowledge of the bible it does not come to man by intuition the book must be studied, pondered, prayed over, searched into, and not left always lying on a shelf, or carelessly looked at now and then. It is the students of the Bible, and they only, who will find it a weapon ready to hand in the day of battle. We see, in the last place, from these verses, the true principle by which all questions about the observance of the Sabbath ought to be decided. The Sabbath, says our Lord, was made for man, and not man for the sabbath there is a mine of deep wisdom in these words they deserve close attention and the more so because they are not recorded in any gospel but that of saint mark let us see what they contain the sabbath was made for man god made it for adam in paradise and renewed it to israel on mount sinai it was made for all mankind not for the jew only but for the whole family of adam it was made for man's benefit and happiness. It was for the good of his body, the good of his mind, and the good of his soul. It was given to him as a boon and a blessing, and not as a burden. This was the original institution. But man was not made for the Sabbath. The observance of the day of God was never meant to be so enforced as to be an injury to his health, or to interfere with his necessary wants. The original command, to keep holy the Sabbath day, was not intended to be so interpreted as to do harm to his body or prevent acts of mercy to his fellow creatures. This was the point that the Pharisees had forgotten and were buried under their traditions. There is nothing in all this to warrant the rash assertion of some that our Lord has done away with the fourth commandment. On the contrary, he manifestly speaks of the Sabbath day as a privilege and a gift and only regulates the extent to which its observance should be enforced. 
He shows that works of necessity and mercy may be done on the Sabbath day, but he says not a word to justify the notion that Christians need not remember the day to keep it holy. Let us be jealous over our own conduct in the matter of observing the Sabbath. There is little danger of this day being kept too strictly in the present age. There is far more danger of it being profaned and forgotten entirely. Let us contend earnestly for its preservation among us in all its integrity. We may rest assured that national prosperity and personal growth in grace are intimately bound up in the maintenance of a holy Sabbath. Footnote. The concluding words of the passage now expounded are remarkable. The Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. They have received some rather strange interpretations, which it may be well to notice. 1. Chrysostom, Grotius, Colovius, and others think that the Son of Man in this place means any man, any one naturally born of the family of Adam, and not Christ himself. To say nothing of the objections that might be brought against the doctrine involved in such a sense, it is an unanswerable objection that the expression, Son of Man, is never used in this way in the New Testament. Whitby says that it occurs eighty-eight times, and always applies to Christ. 2. Others say that our Lord's meaning is to assert his own right to dispense with the observance of the fourth commandment. This, however, seems a very unsatisfactory interpretation. The Lord declares plainly in one place that he came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill. He challenges the Jews in another place to convict him of any breach of the law. Which of you convinceth me of sin? His enemies, when they brought him at last before Caiaphas, did not charge him with breaking the fourth commandment. No doubt they would have done so had he given them any occasion, either by his teaching or practice. The true meaning appears to be that our Lord claims the right to dispense with all the traditional rules and man-made laws about the Sabbath, with which the Pharisees had overloaded the day of rest. As Son of Man, who came not to destroy but to save, he asserts his power to set free the blessed Sabbath from the false and superstitious notions with which the rabbins had clogged and poisoned it, and to restore it to its proper meaning and use. He declares that the Sabbath is his day, his by creation and institution, since he first gave it in Paradise and at Sinai, and proclaims his determination to defend and purify his day from Jewish imposition, and to give it to his disciples as a day of blessing, comfort, and benefit, according to its original intention. Two things are implied in our Lord's words. He is his own divinity. The Lord of the Sabbath day could be no less than God himself. It is like the expression, In this place is one greater than the temple. Matthew chapter 12, verse 6. The other is his intention of altering the day of rest from the seventh day of the week to the first. At the time that he spoke, neither of these things doubtless were apparent to the Jews, and probably not to his disciples. After his ascension, they would remember his words. A passage in Mayer's commentary is worth reading. Quote, it is certain that Christ, being a perfect pattern of the doctrine in all things, did not transgress or maintain any transgression against the law of God. Wherefore it is to be held that all his speech here tended to nothing else but to convince the Pharisees of blindness and ignorance, touching the right keeping of the Sabbath according to the commandment, it being never required to rest so strictly as they thought. 
End quote. Meyer's Commentary, 1631. End footnote, and end of section 8.